Hi, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla uh, Community Church. Please stand as we enter into worship.
Take a moment to greet those around you, and the students can be dismissed at this time. If you would, have a seat. So delighted uh, you're all here to uh, launch into Advent, and it's actually not only a wonderful day because we're celebrating the Advent season today, uh, kicking that off, we are welcoming David Thompson as our new associate pastor today. So Dave Thompson, come on up with Jacqueline. Uh, Samuel and Emily, or Samuel is three, Emily's 18 months, and unnamed baby? 18 weeks. 18 weeks. 18 weeks. Not me, her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> important. Thank that's an important, yeah. Out. But we are delighted that you are here, and uh, I want to ask anybody here who is a trustee now or has been a trustee to come up, and if you were on the interview team that, that uh, part of bringing Dave on board, if you'd come up at this point, we're going to surround them uh, with our prayers in just a moment. Uh, so... We had a great process, by the way. Uh, we had a lot of wonderful candidates, and it was a very prayerful, thoughtful process. Thank you for your prayers and encouragement in that process, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But right now, I want to ask you some, some, come on over. Don't be shy. Yeah. So this is a, this is a, a serious thing. When God uh, raises up a, a group of people to be uh, a church uh, and then brings leaders together. We take that very seriously. We, we don't just say we hire people. We say we call people. And that's not, that's not fancy theological lingo. That's saying we believe that we're, we're, we're calling out to people to answer God's call. And, and all of us are being called by God to walk with him in a relationship but also then to serve him with whatever gifts he's entrusted to us. And then the big challenge is where do I do that? How do I do that? And so the sense of calling, uh, you know, the word vocation, we think of it as a job, but vocation, uh, avocari, is the call of God. And so uh, Dave has, has responded to that call long before coming here. But now that he's coming on board here, we want to confirm that call. We want to commission him, uh, recognizing his gifts uh, for ministry, his call to ministry, the way God has confirmed those gifts and that calling. And as he comes into this season of life, uh, we're commissioning him uh, to the next uh, season and the next chapter. So Thank you for answering that call. I don't want to ask you some formal questions uh, to clarify that call. And so, Dave, God has called you by the voice of the church to serve Jesus as a minister of word and sacrament. Uh, you know who we are. You know what we're about. You know what we believe. And you understand the work for which you've been chosen. Therefore, do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge him Lord of the wor world and head of the church, 
and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I do. And do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative word of God, our foundational text, a witness to Jesus Christ, and God's word for you? I do. And by God's grace, will you be a servant leader, teaching, proclaiming, and demonstrating the kingdom of God in word and deed? And will you seek to serve the Lord and his people with energy, intelligence, discipline, imagination, integrity, and love, and whatever else Jacqueline tells you to do? <laughs> yes, I absolutely will. <laughs> uh, so now, a word to the congregation, a word of commitment and confirmation from you. Uh, you're trusting the work that's been done on your behalf, but I'm asking you to also make a commitment and to confirm this calling uh, from this congregation to Dave. And so here's what I'm going to ask you, and if you can affirm this, you'll say, we do. By God's grace, will you promise to pray for Dave and Jacqueline and provide for his and his family's well-being as he works among us? Will you stand with him and encourage him in his ministry as his partners in the gospel? As together we seek to honor the Lord, glorify the Lord, and bless people in his name. If so, say, we do. Dave, what would you like to say? So we talk about this calling. Um, I can remember the avenue in which I even heard about this job and this opportunity. It can only be from God. And I remember receiving the job description. I looked at it and I handed it to my wife and said, honey, this is what God is calling me to do. And so it was really neat to have gone through it. Now, they put me through the ringer. Don't let them off the hook. Uh, but to have gone through the process and to have gotten to know Pastor Steve and his heart for the church, his ministry, and your life, and what they are looking to do in this next season of ministry, uh, it was just really a match made in heaven. And so I consider it a blessing and a joy. And as he commissioned you also to myself, that I look forward to partnering with you in the commission of the gospel and what God is going to do in this next season of ministry. So to get to know you uh, and my wife and my family, to get to know you is truly is a blessing. And we look forward to seeing what God is going to do in this next season here. So uh, we, we feel blessed to be here. Uh, wow. I, I know you have lots of questions, uh, and you're going to get to know uh, Dave and Jacqueline, uh, Samuel and Emily over the next weeks and months and years. You're going to get to hear his story. Uh, but I want to give you a little snapshot of that, and that he has been serving as a campus pastor under the auspices of Shadow Mountain Church and for the last five years, and uh, prior to that, serving in other capacities at the church, and uh, has a rich experience in pastoral ministry at all levels. Uh, he is the son of a pastor and the grandson of a pastor, but do not hold that against him. <laughs> it does not get worse by generation. It gets better by generation. So we pray. And, and we're, we're delighted uh, that he has that rich and wonderful legacy. And just imagine all the experiences, all the people that God has used to, to help him understand who he is in Christ and what his gifts are and how he's supposed to use those to build up the body of Christ. So we love the fact that there's been a whole movement of God's spirit in his life to bring him to this day. Uh, and this isn't so much the culmination of all that. This is the continuation of that. So what God has continued, we believe that God will also, uh, as God has initiated, we believe that God will also continue. Uh, and so I love this prayer that Paul uh, prays for the Philippians in Philippians 1.9. My prayer for you is that you'd have still more love a love that is full of knowledge and every wise insight, and that you would recognize always the highest and the best. And that's our prayer for Dave. It's the, the prayer we have for everyone in this congregation, that we would walk in the love of Christ, be filled with the grace of Christ, and, and understand what he's put in our hands 
Our guiding passage, if you will, as a church, is out of Ephesians 4.11, equipping the saints for ministry. And so this is Dave's calling, is to equip the saints for ministry, to equip the people of God to do the ministry that God is calling them to. So be on notice that you are full partners uh, with him, with us, all of us together, to hold one another accountable and to support one another as we recognize what God's put in our hands, what he's entrusted to us, and how we use that to bless people in his name. So this is a big, wonderful moment for all of us, and especially for Dave. So uh, I'm going to pray for you, and let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you so much for all that you've done to bring Dave to this place, to uh, bring him and Jacqueline together, to bless them with these children and one on the way. We thank you for the family heritage, uh, a godly mother and father and family members and friends, leaders, pastors, youth workers, uh, colleagues in every variety, uh, life experiences, uh, the highs and lows, the good and the bad, all of it, Lord, you've used uh, to present him today uh, as your man, a man of God, uh, knowing that he's called to serve you and having confirmed that this is the place for this season, uh, you've called him to do that. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift he is to us, uh, for the gift that this congregation will be to him. We pray that you do a work in him here and also a work through him here, that you give this family everything they need uh, to love one another and together uh, to be uh, uh, an avenue for great love and compassion, uh, to bless so many people who, who watch them and, and, and get to know them. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you provide uh, for our calling. And I pray for each person in this sanctuary. For those who don't know you, that they'd answer the call to walk with you, to receive you as Lord and Savior. For those who are wondering, what is my calling? What are my gifts? That you give them wisdom and discernment as they process that. And Lord, that all of us would be so convinced that you've called us into friendship with you, that that would change our perspective on everything. And so we commit Dave and commission him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, be sure to say hello to Dave before you leave today. You can't miss him. And uh, he's going to be up later leading in communion and uh, offering the benediction. So right now, uh, we're going to receive an offering. <clears throat> and as we say, uh, there's lots of ways to give money to the church, and, and you do. Some people have it deducted from their you know, account every month. Some give it in stocks. Some give it all kinds of ways. Some give it weekly, quarterly, annually. Uh, not everybody gives money at this, at this moment in, at the offering. But we want everybody, though, everybody to give themselves to offer themselves to the Lord. So we continue to do this offering, uh, not just as a symbolic uh, way to request uh, support for the church. We do it as a substantive aspect of our worship service. To say, as we come into this place, what do you, th what do you need from the Lord today? Offer yourself to him in the sense that, Lord, I need to be filled by you. I need to be counseled by you. I need to be um, helped by you. And so I offer myself in, in all humility to receive what you want to give me and what you alone can provide for me. We also say, Lord, I'm offering me uh, to be useful to you. Maybe God is, is working on your heart and in your mind about some things you're going to do and are supposed to do, and you're not quite sure about it. This is one of those moments when you reaffirm the fact that, Lord, I am yours. I belong to you. Show me how you want me to serve you uh, and handle well what you've entrusted to me. So let's continue worshiping the Lord as the offering of the morning is now received.
You didn't? Well, if you're new uh, to church, if this is a first for you, uh, we're talking about Advent. You might be wondering, what in the world is Advent? Maybe you've heard the word, maybe not. Uh, simply spoken, uh, Advent celebrates God's coming into the world in Jesus Christ so that we could go Christmas shopping. That's the whole... No. Um, I hope you got some shopping in. Uh, apparently, records were set uh, for online shopping this year. Uh, I don't know what that means necessarily, but we're, we're just better at being materialistic, I think, is what it says. Um, hopefully, you'll have a whole um, season of thinking of ways to bless people that you love and care about. But, but Advent is actually about Jesus coming to rescue us and restore us to a relationship with the living God. <laughs> Let that sink in. Maybe that's very familiar to you. Maybe it's a new thought to you. Uh, Advent uh, means that Jesus came to rescue and restore us to life. That's the whole point of Advent. Why would we want to then go back and look at that? Why do we still talk about this 2,000 years later? Um, it's because Advent is more than just a memory. Oh, something happened a long time ago. Uh, Advent is more than just a moment in time. Gee, it was this interesting feature that happened historically. Uh, what Advent is is, is certainly a, a memory, and it's certainly a, a moment in time, very significant. But most importantly, it's the momentum of the Spirit of God at work redeeming the world, restoring and rescuing the world. So Advent is a very big deal. And the reason we come back each year to market, uh, to, to walk through it, intentionally, deliberately, is certainly to remember the moment, but to remember that we're part of this holy momentum uh, of God being absolutely actively present among us. And so we remember who we are, and we remember who we are becoming. You are something in Christ, and you are becoming something in Christ. Now, if you're saying, I, I don't believe in Christ, I'm here for brunch following the service with my family or friends, um, <clears throat> you can be part of that. You can be part of that, and that's what we want to talk about today, because the big news about Advent is that God created us to be His friends. God created us, and God is redeeming us, restoring us, rescuing us for friendship with Him, and a man named Abraham is our example. Now, if you've been to church much, you've probably never heard anybody talk about Abraham uh, as part of Advent. And I haven't. And, and, and typically we talk about the, the, the characters closer to the birth of Jesus. Uh, but as I started thinking about it uh, this year, I thought, you know, uh, last night actually as I was thinking about what to talk about, um, no, uh, as I was thinking several months ago, well, how do we come at Advent and reframe it from a larger perspective? And I thought, well, why wouldn't we start with how the Bible starts? And so we see that, the, that Advent starts with Abraham. In Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let, let this sink in. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus shows up 2,000 years ago. David lived 1,000 years before that, and Abraham lived 1,000 years before that. That's a long way back. Why is Abram... Abraham uh, in this genealogy. Uh, let me ask you the question, how far have you traced your family genealogy? Perhaps you've done um, Forever 21 or 23andMe or whatever it's called. I can't remember. I get them all mixed up. Uh, but all these genealogy programs now, there's a bunch of them out there that you can actually uh, go back and with a, with a sample of blood and um, 
some money, you can find out something about your family genealogy. How far does yours go back? Decades, generations? Uh, I can tell you that I am the uh, firstborn son of seven generations of firstborn sons, but I have two daughters, so it pretty much ends with me. So I can tell you that. Uh, some friends uh, were in Ireland this fall, and they came back from Ireland, and, and uh, uh, my mom was English, my dad was Irish. They said, oh my gosh, we had the best time in Ireland, and we saw the most interesting sporting event, uh, Irish hurdling, which off the top of your head, it sounds like something that happens at the end of a long pub crawl, you know, Irish hurdling. And I, I'm just not saying that to gross you out. I'm saying that because that's what comes to mind. You're thinking it, so I'm just saying it. Uh, the idea of hurling doesn't sound like a very appealing thing, but it's a very big deal in Ireland. Hurling is a very dangerous, violent game that looks a lot like field hockey and, and a mugging all at the same time. If you've ever seen, how many of you ever seen Irish hurling? All six of you know what I'm talking about right now. Um, but he said, yes, yeah, so I saw hurling. And he said, this is the most interesting sport. And I started laughing because I was thinking, oh my gosh, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather, um, Tom Larkin, wrote the, the rules for modern hurling because the Catholic Church a long time ago said, you can't do it anymore because you kill people. And then the British said, wow, you're getting really good at killing people. You can't do that for sure. Uh, we don't want you to have those kinds of weapons and know how to use them. And so they reintroduced it uh, 100 years ago. And this guy, Tom Larkin, uh, my grandmother's grandfather, uh, wrote the rules to that. I thought, oh my gosh, that's a family thing. If I could take you to Kalimer, a little village, a cute village in Ireland between Dublin and Galway, and, and go to the end of that one street village on this beautiful hill overlooking the whole Irish countryside. There's these really neat, um, you know, these Celtic crosses, these giant Celtic crosses marking graves. They were carved by uh, Packy Fitzpatrick, my, my great-great-uncle. I could show you that, or I could take you to parts of England or, you know, um, Scotland or Wales and say, here's where my family did their thing. One time, uh, probably about 20 years ago, we were in... We were in um, London uh, with the girls. They were young, and it was on November 10th, which is Veterans Day. But we didn't think of it as Veterans Day. We wanted to go to Westminster Abbey. And we showed up, and there's a sign that said, you can't come in only for veterans and their families. We're like, ah, oh, what a bummer. And then it dawned on me, oh my gosh, my grandfather fought in World War I in the British Army. So I said, hey, <laughs> trying to convince somebody, with a, that I, this guy with an American accent and obviously an American family was saying, oh yeah, I'm related to a veteran. And he goes, oh great, come on in. And we were alone pretty much in Westminster Abbey. So I could tell you genealogical things. So, you, so could you. Why am I spending any time on this? Here's why. Your faith geneal genealogy goes back 40 centuries to Abraham. If you have a faith in Christ, your faith genealogy, no matter who you are biologically related to, no matter where your family comes from, by faith, you are related to Abraham. So you have a 40-generation, right, a 40-century, rather, generational faith genealogy. Who is Abram, who later becomes Abraham? Uh, we tend to think of anybody who lived far, 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 you know, long ago as being uh, maybe, you know, cruising through the desert with a camel. If we could go back and see Ur of the Chaldees, and maybe you know some Chaldeans who live in East County. Uh, if we went to Ur of the Chaldees when Abram lived there, we'd be very impressed what a cosmopolitan uh, trade center it was. They had a canal that connected to the, the Persian Gulf. It was a major trade center. Abram was a very savvy part of that. His whole family, generationally, were traders. 
They're very wealthy, connected people. And when Abram takes off on this journey that God calls him to, they travel through very sophisticated cities along the whole way. An identifiable trade route that had protection, had all the goods and services you'd expect to support a very busy trade. It went from the Persian Gulf to Egypt and beyond. And so this is Abram. But Abram had a unique uh, genealogy among the people in which he lived because his genealogy is that he was uh, related generationally, several generations back, to a man named Eber. And because he was of Eber, Abram was an Eberu, Hebrew. And Eber uh, was related to a man several generations before him named Shem. And everybody who came from Shem were called Shemites, Semites. So Abram was a Semite and a Hebrew, which means he believed in one God. Now, he lives among a, a people who believe in hundreds, literally hundreds of gods. And so in the midst of this, God confirms this faith that he has and this belief in the one God and gives him a calling. He gives him a calling. And so that's the context for this calling. A very wealthy, savvy, highly capable, sophisticated, cosmopolitan, connected person is given a call from God. How did the, in the first century, let's skip, you know, to the first century from this, you know, 20, uh, uh, to 2000 B.C., uh, 4000 B.C. to uh, uh, the first century A.D. How did the church do what it did? Savvy, connected people moving the gospel out along Roman roads. People who had dual citizenship, like Paul, a Jew among Jews, a Roman citizen connected by Roman roads. He could go anywhere and do anything. The Roman roads were well-protected, well-connected. So this is the context I want you to have in your head. Going from interesting city to interesting city in well-developed well, uh, agricultural lands. Some places were, were desert-like, but that's, we, we drive to the desert from here to the desert, right? We drive from here to Mammoth, and we go through all kinds of desert. But you're pretty much never disconnected from a very sophisticated, connected culture. Go from your country, God says to him, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Leave it all. Now, he's leaving it all, but he's so well-equipped, he can leave it all. He's so self-sufficient. He is so connected to a whole system that he can leave it all. He says, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All families on earth, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. That's a massive promise to make to somebody. The cacophony of, of idols and false gods being worshipped, and out of that, this one clear clarion voice that says, I'm calling you. I'm confirming what I see in you. So it says, Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, what does this mean? Did he have what we'd call a come-to-Jesus moment? Oh, my gosh, I'm not going to believe in God? No. What we've already seen from his own genealogy is he's now being confirmed by God as a person with a faith in the one God. Not a lot of detail connected to that yet, but God is confirming who he already is and who God has experienced him to be. And so, belief, uh, this word, Abraham believed God, isn't just what we think of 
by belief. Typically in our culture, belief is intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I, I, that, might, that probably exists. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're committed to it, right? We believe a lot of things that we're not committed to, that we're not connected to. It's in our head. But in this sense, the word belief, emuna, this wonderful Hebrew word, means more than intellectual assent. It means to trust in, to rely upon, to be actively engaged in whatever it is you have this faith in. It's a transformational word. It's a big commitment word. You put all your weight on it. You're, you're Cortez burning the ship, so to speak. So it's trusting and it's being trustworthy. It's about being faithful and steadfast. God recognized it. That's what it means to credit it to righteousness. He recognizes this uh, in Abram, crediting this righteousness to him, this idea of being rightly related to the one God. Uh, we see this in, in, in the Apostle Paul in the first century writing to followers of Jesus in Rome. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God tells us what we otherwise wouldn't know. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then Paul quotes from one of the Hebrew prophets, Habakkuk. He says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's the same word, emunah. When Moses was holding his arms up as a way of defeating the enemy, right, the enemy armies, as he's holding his arms up, it was an act of emuna. When God is described as, 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 as righteous and trustworthy, the word emuna is used. So it's a powerful word, a descriptor. And so Paul quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. So when we talk about faith, that's the word that they're using, not the superficial kind of insubstantial way that we use the word. It's faith that I've actually put my money on it, I put my heart into it, put my time on it. I've closed all other options, all other doors. And so trust is this faith. This kind of faith is about a trust, a trust that is durable and dependable. What is trust? Trust is relational and functional credibility. Trust is relational credibility. I trust your character. I know who you are. I trust you. It's also functional credibility. I know you can do what you say you're going to do. You only go to a doctor or a dentist or a mechanic that you trust. Not just because they're a wonderful person, but because they fix your car. They fix your teeth. They keep you healthy, right? There's a functional credibility that you've given them. And so in, in a deep relationship, what makes a deep relationship work for you? Trust. Why? Because it confirms and affirms character and competence. You only trust people in whose character and competence you have confidence. And so we'll never be rightly related to anyone without trust, ever. You take trust away from any relationship, there goes the relationship. You can have coexistence without trust. You can't have real collaboration. You can't have real connection. So, so James, uh, stepbrother of Jesus in the first century church, sums it up this way about Abram. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, and he was called God's friend. Where does this come from? Is James just saying, I'm going to give him um, a, an upgrade, a promotion? I'm going to call him God's friend? No. Again, James is quoting Scripture. He's reaching back. And this is why we say to people, read the Bible. Well, I don't believe in it. Yeah, that's a better reason for you to read it. If you don't believe in it, you should know you don't believe. 
And if you do believe it, don't take it for granted and leave it unread. Because unless you read the Old Testament and understand it, you're never going to really understand and appreciate to this fullest impact the New Testament. So James is saying to all these uh, Jewish followers of Jesus and any Gentiles who'd be hearing it, guess what? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And yeah, he was called God's friend. He has this not just from an opinion, but on, on, the, on the authority of Scripture. He's taking his cue from Scripture. So we go to a chapter like Second Chronicles. Here's this guy named King Jehoshaphat, one of the greatest, most righteous kings in Israel's history, a, a descendant from David, living in about the uh, 8th century, ninth, into the ninth, beginning of the 8th century. He's a good man. But some people called the Ammonites and the Moabites who live next door in what we call Jordan are going to overrun the country. They have the power to, to, to annihilate Israel. And so Jehoshaphat, who's this righteous king, who's taken down all the idols that King Ahab had put up, and is trying to get the people to follow God's law and honor and worship to God in word and deed. He says this, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? That's the preamble to his prayer to say, well, then do it now again. He quotes, uh, he, he refers to Abraham as a friend of God. And then God himself, talking to the people through the prophet Isaiah, says this, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, same guy, Israel, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. This is a very Mideastern way of thinking. Uh, your enemy is my enemy. Your friend is my friend. So it's a big deal to call Abram a friend of God. Why? It, it implies the deepest, most durable trust you can have. I'll talk more about this. Friend, what comes to your mind when you hear that word? Let's go to the next slide. Most importantly, who comes to mind when you hear that word? When you hear the word friend, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Right now, who's in your head? Are you imagining friends? Uh, when I was six years old, moved to the United States, I lived across the street from Michael Varner. Every morning, we'd call each other up, and then we'd run across the street and hug. And we'd go play. And we were partners in crime because he had two older brothers. And they would always create these clubs. And we always wanted to be in their clubs. But they made us go through these horrible initiation practices. They would practically torture us to get into the club. And as soon as we joined the club, they'd disband it and create a new club. And so that just bonded me and Michael, you know. So Mike Varner is my long-lost friend. And I, I probably haven't seen him since I was eight. Who comes to mind? Uh, do you count God as a friend? Is that kind of a whole other level of, ah, uh, it's too abstract for me. I don't, God is a friend. I, just, I don't deserve it. And how could you know him? I asked the question, can you be counted as his friend? Because this is where this goes. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. He invites us into this relationship of intimate trust. He's got the character to support it. He's got the competence to support it. In word and deed, he has the credibility to say, you are my friends. I'm teaching you everything the Father has taught me. And then Jesus' friend John tells us this about Jesus. He says, uh, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. 
well, what's this referring to? There's so many things that Jesus did or said would, would overwhelm the libraries of the world. What's that about? One word, stories. John is saying there are so many stories to tell. If we only had enough room, we could write them all down and distribute them. What was going on here? Jesus and his friends shared a life-changing story that they invited others into. They're inviting us into that story. So friends have stories to tell. Would you agree? You and your friends have stories to tell. What happens when you get together with friends? The further back, the better. You start telling stories. Hey, remember that time? And some of those stories uh, you don't want coming out. They don't, some people don't want their friends from childhood to tell their nickname in childhood. Uh, this week I received a text from a guy named Greg Yoder. And as soon as I saw his name, stories started flooding my memory. Greg Yoder. Uh, because friends have a story to tell, they also have shared experiences, right? And Greg reminded me that I bought him and his buddies a gallon of beer, no, a gallon of A&W root beer uh, 45 years ago, and we sat around talking about Jesus. Now, Greg's a high school kid, and I'm his college kid uh, volunteering as a young life leader at Will Glen High School where there's like zero Christians at this school. And I'm a new Christian and I'm, 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 some people said, we're trying to start this thing called Young Life. I said, okay, great. And then I, I, I jumped in, and, and then now a couple years into it, um, I'm at college, and, and I'm, I'm one of the leaders of this thing. And I think, I don't know, how am I going to get these guys' attention? So uh, Greg's whole claim to fame was when he was a kid, they won the World, uh, Little, League, uh, Little League World Series. That was his big thing. I said, hey, there's something even better than that. It's knowing the living God. He's like, really, what is that all about? Let's get some root beer and talk about it. So I started, I did, bought all this root beer for these guys. And so all these guys, uh, Greg Yoder, Doug Ament, um, uh, Jeff Foskett, Bob Goff, all these kids that were in sophomores in high school started getting together to hang out and talk about Jesus. Who would have thought that 45 years later, Greg would remember that and say, hey, I remember the root beer. One story among so many other stories, so many adventures we had, so many mountaineering trips up in British Columbia, so many other experiences, so many names and stories and experiences. How about you? Whose name comes to mind? Who are the people that God used in your life to get your attention about him? Those are very, very special kinds of friends. All the regular stuff about friends count for them, but there's something else going on there because he said, hey, you know, what do you think about Jesus? I don't know. I don't think about Jesus. Or no, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, why not? I don't know. I just don't. Friends have stories to tell because they have experiences. But you know what? Not only do they have stories to tell because they've shared experiences, they trust one another. That's what a friend is. That person with whom you share stories and experiences and you trust each other. That's why when people often experience maybe some success in life later on, who do they trust the most? The friends they had when they didn't have anything. The people who really tell them what they are and, and what they're like powerful. So the message of Advent is simple. Trust God. That's not simple. It can get very complicated, but the message is simple. Trust God. So in the time we have remaining, a few next few minutes, I want to just, just drill into that. I'm going to keep this slide up there. Trust God. Uh, you know, in our nation, in God we trust is the official motto of the United States. It used to be until the 50s, e pluribus unum, from the many one, but it got bumped by, by uh, trust in God. In God we trust, out of Psalm 91, and a couple of other psalms reference that. That makes sense to me. 
that e pluribus unum would get bumped for in God we trust. Why? Because without trust, the many cannot become one. There's no basis for the many becoming one if there's no trust, right? Again, that's the problem that we're feeling, dealing with in our culture. We're so atomized. We're so in, in these divided camps. No trust, no e pluribus unum. And so God had, had promised Abram and Sarai a child. A- Abram and Sarai had nothing but trust for each other. They loved each other dearly. And yet the great heartbreak of their life was being childless. And so God makes them this promise and asks them to trust him with it. This is hard. Yeah, but how does this work? It's a little bit like when the angel appeared to Mary. Hey, you're going to have this child. How is that working? I'm a virgin. Being childless was a great pain in their life, and it took God 25 years to prepare them for it. They needed 25 years of God's stories, God experiences, and God trust. And even in their pain, they trusted God's perfect timing and fulfilling his promises to them. Will you, in your pain, will you trust God? Because if, 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 we, if we're going to trust God anywhere, it's going to be in our pain. Because otherwise, it's easy to trust on a day like today. It's easy to trust if everything is going well in your world. It's in, the, in those pain points that we say, I don't know. I don't know. But in their case, eventually, those stories and those experiences and that trust changed them so significantly that their new identity required a bigger name. So Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, and I wish I had time to unpack that for you. But this is what happens to everybody who trusts God. He writes a new story, a better story in their life. He gives us a new name, beloved. He gives us a new identity, my friend. Your true, true name, known only to God, is beloved. Known only to God in the sense that he knows you, and he calls you beloved. He knows what he's talking about. You are his beloved. And your new identity, based on that name, is you are his friend. Yeah, but I don't even believe in him but he's calling you into friendship nonetheless. When I was a little kid, you could never be friends with another kid until you got in a fight with him. I don't know what that was. I mean, just a bunch of little hellions running around the neighborhood. But it was like you had to go through some mono-a-mono moment, and then you were fast friends after that. You had to go through some big, hairy ordeal, and then all of a sudden you were friends. You are bonded. God is giving us a new name and calling us to be his friends, even if we don't believe in him yet. Let me, let me throw two names out to you. Uh, you might recognize either one or both. Gary Carter and Andrew Clavin. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, you might recognize the name Gary Carter, one of the great uh, baseball players of all time. Um, played for the Astros and, and for, the, for the Mets. Uh, Gary Carter, Hall of Fame baseball player, catcher, husband, father, uh, follower of Jesus, annoying Jesus freak to his teammates and to the media. He grew up in a Christian home, a Presbyterian home. His mom dies at age 12. He still has a faith, but it's kind of, I don't know what happened there. I don't know where God fits into that. And then one of his buddies, as a professional baseball player, was a Catholic follower of Jesus. And he said, he said Gary, this is what it means to trust God in everything. And brought Gary Carter to this place of being so fully alive in Christ, he became annoying to everybody around him. In the best sense, because all of his baseball players were just hard partying, uh, uh, party animals, and he was like Mr. Uh, scrupulously Moral. And so he was mocked for his faith by his teammates and his media, but he was still one of the best home run hitters and one of the great players of all time, Hall of Famer. Andrew Clavin. Uh, you've probably read some of his books. Stephen King calls him one of the best authors he's ever read. He's written all kinds of screenplays. He's a phenomenally successful writer. 
But at the time uh, that, that he and Gary Carter's world connect, uh, he's newly married to the woman of his dreams. They have a beautiful baby. He can't be happier, but he's miserable nonetheless. He's a struggling writer. He's a self-professed atheist. He's had a very difficult relationship with his own father and his own family. And so on the night that he planned to take his life, he's smoking away uh, to a Mets game. Now, if you've been a Mets fan for a long time, you would think of taking your life too, but that's a whole other story um, from this one. But he's listening to this Mets game while he's smoking, but he has a single thought running through his head. I don't know how I can live. I don't know how I can live. I don't know how I can live. Therefore, I can't live. I can't live. I can't live. I can't live. So he's going to take his life. He's working through the sadness of what that would do to his wife and his child, but the pain was so intense he couldn't imagine going on. And as he's saying, I don't know how I can live, something was about to happen that would show him how he could live. And that involved Gary Carter playing for the Mets. With two men on, Carter gets up, and the whole game is depending on him at this point. It's now or never, something has to happen. And he hits a single to the outfield, which you think is fantastic. Two guys on, they're going to win the game, except that. Gary Carter has a very, very big problem. He's played catcher for so long, his knees are shot. He can hardly walk, never mind run. So as he's hobbling toward first base, even though it went out to the outfield, it looks like he's going to be thrown out. And everybody's watching this play out, right? And as the guy throws it, it's just the tie goes to the runner. So he barely beats the throw. Two men score, and against all odds, the Mets win the game. But this is no ordinary game. This is the 1986 World Series. Now the dreaded post-game Carter interview is about to happen. When he's going to get up and he's going to sound like Dabo Swinney or Tim Tebow and tell the world how awesome Jesus is. And, and you know, Dabo Swinney, uh, 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 amazing coach, uh, one of the great coaches uh, uh, today, uh, or Tim Tebow and others like him, the first thing they say is, well, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, so Clavin's thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to really push me over the edge to kill myself. This guy's going to get up and say this. And so in the after-game interview, Carter, of course, is asked how he beat the throw on those damaged knees. And Clavin expects him to say, Jesus, help me win. He's going to just lose it. Instead, Carter says this, sometimes you just have to play in pain. <laughs> and he immediately gets Clavin's attention. What did he say? Now, of course, for Gary Carter, this is just the outgrowth of his deep theology. But he, he, he's brief and to the point and summarizes it succinctly. Sometimes you just have to play in pain. And that riveted Clavin's attention because what? Carter trusted God even in his chronic pain? Carter's faith included embracing his pain? As all of a sudden God was speaking to Clavin through Carter, the person he couldn't stand is all of a sudden God's lifeline to him. And so maybe now he's thinking, maybe Clavin thinks, I could live in my emotional pain. Maybe I could play in pain long enough to find a way through it. And his thoughts shift from, I don't know how I can live, to, I don't know how I can live, but maybe someone can show me how. And that kicked him into a process that led him to be a follower, follower, a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. And to this day, he would say, I am a secular Jew. I, I become more Jewish than ever because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I can only attribute uh, my success as a writer uh, as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, to Jesus, my Lord and Savior. And again, he's now, the, he's joined the ranks of those who create this nails on a chalkboard moment 
when famous people who are very successful get up and say, it's all about Jesus. God was calling him to a journey of trust. God is calling everyone in this room to that same journey. Well, I have excuses and reasons why I don't need to go on that journey. I'm sorry, but they fall apart. They don't count. They don't add up. You know you're defending against God, and just be honest enough to say, I'm angry at God, or I'm angry at my dad, or I'm angry at life, or whatever. But open your heart and your mind to God if you're really going to be honest about it. Because I think that's what Gary Carter, who's now uh, deceased, would say to you. I know that's what Andrew Clavin would say if he was standing up here. God is calling everyone on a journey of trust. Are you willing to trust God like that? Are you willing to play through the pain? God isn't holding out on you if you're in pain. And everybody in this room is in some version of some kind of pain in your own life for somebody you love and care about, for the state of the world around you. God isn't holding out on you. He's holding you together as you learn to trust in him. Advent means God meets us even in our pain. You can't avoid pain in this life, but you can trust God in every circumstance, even in the midst of your pain and your uncertainty and your confusion. So why not let your pain be a bridge rather than a barrier? Let that be where God meets you and carries you where you couldn't ever go but for him. Let me wrap it up by saying this. Advent is a season of anticipation, yes. We look forward to something, but as and more profoundly, it's actually a season of preparation. That's why we keep coming back to it. Well, Jesus was born. It's a done deal. We know about it. Right. So the anticipation is a bit, I guess, ceremonial. We're going to celebrate on Christmas Eve in this room, the birth of Jesus. You'll celebrate at Christmas Day. So why, why, why? Because it's preparation. We need to be constantly reminded who we are and what we are becoming. Like Abram along the way saying, man, I don't know. Did you really mean what you said, God? Yes, I did. Hang in there. We're getting there. We're on our way. It's happening. Trust me. So what will trusting God require of you? What will trusting God require of you? It never, ever costs you honesty or integrity. Ever. It will never cost you being intellectually dishonest. It will never cost you being uh, willfully stupid. There's a lot of people who name Christ as their Savior who are, who are voluntarily stupid. That would be all of us. We can all do stupid things. But God simply requires this of you, that you be honest enough to say, okay, so who are you? And why do you care about me? And why do you want me to be your friend? And that involves us in saying, maybe, maybe you're who you say you are. So I ask you the questions. What will you keep doing as you prepare for uh, Advent? What will you stop doing as you prepare for Advent? What will you start doing? Jesus fulfills God's promises to bless you and others through you as you trust in him. So lean into him this Advent. I love the way uh, the Proverbs say it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will lead you in the way that you need to go, just like he led Abraham and Sarah. So, Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my family, for my dear brothers and sisters and friends here that we would trust in you with all our heart, opening our minds to you, opening our lives to you, telling our secrets, confessing our sins, repenting of our need to be in control, that we would learn to yield ourselves to you, that you might give us a life that we were made for, 
that we might understand what it means to be counted as your friend and friends together in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come now at this moment to take Holy Communion together, and I just want to set this up for you. There's a song that my wife and I sing to our kids each night, and it goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I'm reminded every time that we come together at the Lord's table that Jesus is reminding us just how much he loves us. I was reminded as Pastor Steve was telling that story about Carter and Clavin, that I don't know how I can live, I don't know how I can live. You know what? Jesus said, this is how you can live. You live through me. God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and most importantly, his resurrection, so that you and I could have eternal life, that you and I could have life. Scripture reminds us that I have come, that you may have life, life in abundance. That that's hope here, and that's hope that we will receive one day with him for eternity. And Jesus, as he is sitting around this table with his disciples, he takes this bread, he blesses it, then he breaks it. And he passes it to his disciples. He says, eat, take this, do in remembrance of me. Then later on in that same meal, he takes the cup, which represents his blood. He says, this is the blood in my new covenant, in my blood, poured out for you. When we come into this moment and we take this bread and we take this cup, we are reminded to the extent of God's love for you of just how much Jesus went through to have that kind of relationship, that trust that we can have with a holy God that he made a way. So I'm going to invite those who are going to pass this out to come forward and as we receive this. There's something important, and if, whether you've been here uh, for a lengthy season or if this is your first time, and, and uh, for you, this is a time for us as believers to gather around this table. And if you're an unbeliever, uh, this is not obligated for you to take this. This is for those of you who have placed your trust and faith and obedience in Jesus. We're going to hear these words spoken to you as you take that cracker. And the beautiful part about communion this day is we have gluten-free matzah and unfermented juice. And as beautiful that is, here's what it represents. And you're going to hear this. This is Christ's body that was given for you. This is Christ's blood that was shed for you. You know what this time is, is it's personal. That you is very personal. Jesus gave himself for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from that grave for you and gave his body and gave his blood for you. So as you come, you can take the cracker and and dip that in the juice, and then go ahead and eat it. Make your way back to your seat, and take a moment as this worship team continues on just to thank God. Reflect. Think about what it costs Jesus. Think about the life that you have in Jesus. Think about the joy that you can have a trust in a God who has given you every reason to trust him. So let's gather together and pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we take this bread and we drink of this juice, a reminder of the sacrifice of your son Jesus on that cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But Father, we're also reminded in Scripture that out of your great love for us, you sent your son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, Father, we take a moment during this service to thank you, to praise you, but also to reflect on what it cost you. And the precious Son of Jesus. We do this in remembrance of what you have done for us, and we do not take that lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.
And that is how you do church. Thank you guys for leading us in that beautiful song. And what a great reminder as we go out this week of what a great God we serve and what a great God that we have a relationship with. And if you have not, and again, what Pastor Steve talked about, guys, this is true. If you have not put your trust and faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day. Would you come talk to one of us? Or if you make your way out the back here, there's a wonderful prayer garden with an amazing team of people who want to pray for you and can encourage you and help you. And even if you don't know what you need prayer for, they'll figure it out. So go and meet with them and talk with them about that. But take some time just to pray today. And so let's just close out in this wonderful way in which I love that you guys close the service with this wonderful blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.